Good morning, everyone. Before I um, start in on the message, a few weeks ago, Laura and I traveled up to Oregon, and we were with Esther and Brian, uh, my youngest daughter and her husband. And behind the house that they rent is a little tiny house that Dallas Bros lives in. And Dallas um, goes to church and then comes home from church every Sunday and hears the recording of the TCF service. And he's very faithful to listen to every service that's online. And when we were there, we had a little time with Dallas. He said, Jim, you've never given me a shout-out from the pulpit. And you probably only have one more chance before I uh, graduate. So let's, let's give a shout-out to Dallas, all right? Hey, Dallas! Yeah! Are we recording, by the way? <laughs> oh, keep going. Yeah, we were up in Seattle a few, uh, or Oregon a few weeks ago. And, no, I'm kidding. No. I want to speak this morning on uh, true faith according to the book of James, because it is a time for faith. Amen? It is a time for faith. Many of us are struggling with incredible challenges. Um, Ecclesiastes 3.1 says there's an appointed time for everything, a time for every season under heaven. And even though we are absolutely the most blessed people, imagine, um, some Tuesday mornings when the elders are praying together, we, to be honest with you, we are sometimes overwhelmed with the challenges that we know you face in your lives. And um, this Tuesday morning was such a time, and I was listening, we were all listening as Jim Gary, that we might pass the test, he said in prayer. Oh God, let us pass the test. And that was confirmation to me that I was on the right track um, as I had already determined to preach along these lines, that it is a time for faith. 2 Corinthians 5.2 says, For indeed in this house we groan. We struggle with unsaved loved ones who simply refuse to come to Christ. We, we have life-threatening illnesses among us. We have bombings on our streets. We have marriages falling apart. We have destructive winds of doctrine that tear at the fabric of people's faith. We have children suffering before us. We grieve over the political confusion of our times. We grieve over the rapid descent of our culture as we look at some of the social issues that are before us. Sometimes adversity just piles up, doesn't it? I think of Ginger, um, you know, struggling with pain in her body and then losing her job and then uh, getting T-boned this week. And um, sometimes adversity just piles up. And Ginger and Rebecca were so glad that 
it wasn't worse. We praise God. You know, Jesus knew there would be times like this, didn't he? Um, I, uh, Jim went on to pray that morning from Luke 18, verse 1, where he said that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. And that second part, we know the first part, but that second part's important too, isn't it? That we not lose heart. And then Jesus went on to tell a parable, and at the end of that parable, he said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? How many of you want to be found in faith when the Lord returns? Amen. In the New Testament, the book of James is a book that was written by the brother of the Lord Jesus. Uh, And in this book, he describes true faith, some aspects of true faith, what true faith looks like. And I want to choose a theme from each chapter, let that be our outline this morning, about true faith and flesh out uh, that, that point or that theme from each chapter. So here is the outline, in case you want to keep track. Um, In chapter 1, we're going to look at uh, that true faith endures trial with joy. That true faith strives to endure trial with joy. The second chapter talks about how faith is visible. Faith is visible. The third chapter talks about taming that rascally tongue. Taming that rascally tongue, and I know you're just dying to hear convicting scriptures about that. Chapter 4 talks about true faith pursues humility. True faith pursues pursues humility. And then number 5, the fifth chapter, talks about waiting patiently for the Lord's return. So let's look at point number 1. True faith endures Trials or adversity with joy. I'm going to read uh, verses 2 through 4 and also verse 12. I bet you can hear this in your mind and in your heart even before I read it. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Then in verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. I have one of those study Bibles that has a few pages of notes before each book of the Bible. And uh, one helpful paragraph in my notes says this, one of the most difficult areas of Christian life is that of testings and temptations. James reveals our correct response to both. To testings, count it all joy. To temptations, realize that God is not their source. Now, I want you to think about that last point, that temptations are not from God. And uh, think with me about the Lord's Prayer, Um, the line that says, lead us not into temptation. If the Lord doesn't lead us into temptations, why does Jesus teach us 
to pray, Lord, uh, lead us not in temptation. It's an interesting question. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, or his book called The Hard Sayings of Jesus, picks this, this particular question as one of those he wants to address. And he says that this verse actually means, Lord, pass the test. Help my faith not fail. Grant that we may not fail the test, which is just what Jim prayed the other morning. I think of, you know, it's hard not to think of those in our body, Pat and Larry Gregory, Bob and Shirley McWilliams, Randy and Susan McCoy, the Burgard family now, and others, too many to mention, who are facing some real adversity. Shirley McWilliams came into my office shortly after Bob was was diagnosed with his disease and uh, with tears in her eyes expressed gratitude to God that she would have a chance to serve Bob in these days of weakness, that she would be able to give back to him and back to the Lord for all they had given her. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful spirit? I think of Pastor Jamal and how we were praying for him and in prison. How long was he in prison, Joel? 21 months. 21 months. Um, I remember kind of taking on that prayer for him and many nights lying down in my very comfortable bed and thinking of Pastor Jamal uh, in that prison uh, suffering with a tremendous headache, uh, some kind of bleeding on the brain or something going on, still leading 20 to 30 prisoners to the Lord, and then to hear of his marvelous release. But then Joel kind of stepped it up, at least 500 prisoners in Iran who are just quietly suffering, their wives are not speaking up so that the house churches are not troubled uh, by the authorities and the gospel can flourish. These, These are examples to us, witnesses, if you will, going before us and with us across time so that when our time comes, we too may pass the test. I'm in a land of plenty, personally. I'm in a land, great land, like the palette you sang. Um, what is the verse about times of plenty? Yeah, when everything's as it should be, or I mean, that kind of. I know I always won't be there, that there will come times of testing, and I want, want to be ready. I want to pass the test as I know you do. True faith endures trial with joy. Number two is that true faith is visible. True faith is visible. Let's look at verses through 17 of chapter 2. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Many people get confused thinking that James is saying that you're saved. He's not saying that. He's saying that works and deeds are evidence of a vital faith. That if you just have an intellectual faith, it's dead. That you need that plugged in, that vital Christ in you kind of faith. And that kind of faith will be visible. You, you cannot help but do things in faith and for the Lord that are visible. I'd like to give you a few examples. Um, back in the late 90s, Millard and Shirley aren't here this morning, but back in the late 90s, uh, Shirley invited me to get involved with a ministry called Bright Tomorrows, and it's a, a ministry to those with persistent mental illnesses, bipolar disease and so forth. And um, we, I, I, I wrote a grant and, surprise, got the grant, um, $25,000 grant foundation, and we hired a master's level counselor to and furnished an apartment in Fairmont Terrace at 61st in Peoria. I was in there working with moms, trying to help them uh, with life skills and break out of And even though she um, uh, apartment manager called me and she said, Jim, um, I'm, I need to ask you to leave. I need to ask your ministry to And she said, because um, nothing visible is happening. She said, I, I know that the um, is there doing what they can, but the owner will not, cannot justify the loss of rent for that apartment unless there's something visible. Can't you start a soccer league? or get the kids' uniforms, or something. And um, now I know that much of what goes on in the kingdom is behind the scenes, and yet here was a situation where there was a demand for something visible. We were able to stay a little longer. I did get a soccer there um, briefly, so it had a, had a good ending. But just a, just a way to illustrate this point. Another way to illustrate it is, um, Heather sent out uh, a prayer letter for Gordon about his speaking engagements over the next um, I want to just make you aware that our works hard. Um, I just was totaling up the hours, Heather, that he's going to be speaking, something like 12 hours this weekend. Um, at a couple different services, um, and having been overseas sometimes myself, you're not in control of what you're asked to do. And so if he's asked to pray for the entire church, he will pray for the entire church. This is after traveling across the world. Um, then next week, it looked like it was about 
20 hours of teaching, four days, four hours each day. I'd like to ask you how you would like to speak in behalf of God and from his word for that kind of, with that kind of demand. I mean, it's a, it's a daunting, daunting task. And then the next week, more like 24 hours, I just calculated here. I mean, I, I you know, and I don't say this to, to exalt Gordon, but I just do, do say his faith is visible. He goes and he does, and he pours out for the gospel. Maybe my favorite example uh, came last week in our uh, TCF follow-up ministry class. We asked um, several to share about how they go about evangelism and discipleship in the workplace. And uh, Laura Guineri shared on literacy and evangelism, her work there and opportunities there. You guys, that is a gold mine. I hope that in the future we can highlight that ministry a little bit here at TCF um, so that we can uh, partner with that ministry. Then uh, Joe uh, Sicori told about John 3.16, and then um, Sarah Joy talked about work, working in her place of work at the health center, how she approaches her job. And I was blown away by Sarah Joy's attitude. She said, um, when I work, I want to be the hardest worker and the happiest worker. And she said, I just look around for how to lighten other people's loads. And she just talked and had such a beautiful spirit. And then we asked her questions like, well, don't people take advantage of you? Or don't they get mad uh, because you set the bar so high? And she said, oh, I, I just don't worry about that. I just, I just want to work hard and be happy, and I want to serve the Lord. And it made me think of what verse, do you think? Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily unto the Lord and not unto men. True faith is visible. Point three is that true faith tames the tongue. Now, this is the one we may not really want to talk about. Um, but let's go ahead and read several verses from chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 12. Let, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. There's a really encouraging verse for leaders, you know, stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. Somebody asked, when a man stumbler marries a woman stumbler, what do you get? Lots of little stumblers. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we reject we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder, 
wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And have any of you ever felt that you set a forest fire with your tongue at some point in your life? Um, I sure have. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Let's just stop there. Matthew Henry writes of this uh, passage that we are taught to govern our tongue so as to prove ourselves perfect and upright men and such as have an entire government over ourselves. He that offends not in word will not only prove himself a sincere Christian, but a very much advanced and improved Christian. For the wisdom and grace which enable him to rule his tongue will enable him also to rule all his actions. We should learn to make the due management of our tongues more our study, because though they are little members, they are capable of doing a great deal of good or a great deal of hurt. If you're like me, you love the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about the tongue, the mouth, the lips. Let me just read a few verses to you. First couple are about restraining your speech. Proverbs 10.19 says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. So how much do you talk? It's a good question. Proverbs 29.11, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 12.18, Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. One that um, our kids memorized was Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And here's a really interesting one, Proverbs 25.15, by forbearance a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. Isn't that a cool image that a, a soft answer, a soft word can be far more persuasive than an angry or loud or demanding kind of word? At least that's the way I take it. A soft tongue breaks the bone. Proverbs twenty one twenty three: he who guards his mouth and his tongue 
guards his soul from troubles. And then um, the last one, Proverbs 25:11, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word fitly spoken in right circumstances. So though we all stumble in many ways with our tongues, I'm grateful to be a part of this church because I feel that we do a pretty good job um, exercising discipline over our tongues as a whole. But let's keep working on it, amen? Let's keep working on taming our tongues, using them to uh, season our speech with salt and with grace to encourage each other. All right, point number four is that true faith pursues humility. True faith pursues humility. Let's look at chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We'll read 10 verses. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose when it says he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. seems to me that there are two ways of life presented here. The first way of life is an all-out battle and competition and struggle to obtain the pleasures of this world. The second pathway is the pathway of humility, giving up rights, being God's slave, submission to God. Well, someone might ask, what's the big deal with humility? Why is that to be valued more than fighting and being aggressive for the pleasures of this world. Why is that preferable? I think the real answer in that is that when we enter into humility, we are cloaked with God's nature. Um, I first read that phrase um, by G.D. Watson, a Methodist minister who wrote this little, little track, Others May, You Cannot. How many of you are familiar with this little track? Others may, you cannot. Let me read just a couple portions of it, see what you think. If God has called you to be truly like Jesus in all your spirit, he will draw you into a life of crucifixion and humility. 
he will put on you such demands of obedience that you will not be allowed to follow even other Christians. In many ways, he seems to let other good people do things which he will not let you do. One other passage, God may let others be great, but keep you small. He will let others do a work for him and get the credit, but he will make you work and toil without knowing how much you are really doing. Anybody relate to that? You're just wondering, where do, how am I doing? You know, am I, am I where I'm supposed to be? Then to make your work still more precious, he will let others get the credit for the work which you have done. This to teach you the message of the cross, humility, and then listen to this line, and something of the value of being cloaked with his nature. I think that's what humility brings us. He dwells with the humble, doesn't he? In Isaiah, we read a couple of great verses. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In theological terms, this is talked about the transcendence of God and the imminence of God, the closeness of him to us. And who is he close to? Not the proud, not the arrogant, not those battling for the pleasures of this world, but those who are humble and lowly. One other scripture says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? Where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and what? Who trembles at my word. That's the one to whom God looks. Is that you? I hope it is. I hope it is in your heart to be that one. In the Sermon on the Mount, we read, Blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. And in Matthew eleven twenty nine, we see Jesus revealing in a way very unique. He reveals his nature when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for, what does he say? I am gentle and lowly of heart. He's revealing his nature, isn't he? His personality, his heartbeat. He's saying, come, come be like me. Come be with me. Come be in me. You will find rest for your souls. So in humility, we find the very presence and nature of God. In humility, we find the unsurpassing value of being cloaked in his nature, and we find rest for our souls. True faith pursues humility. 
Finally, I want to say true faith waits patiently for the Lord's return. Let's look at chapter 5, just a couple of verses, 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know, we don't do enough, I don't think, to teach and preach this reality that this is not our home. You know, we're so busy trying to figure out how to cope uh, successfully down here that we, we really, I don't think, in the Western church have the uh, eternal mindset that the scriptures really want us to have, that the Lord really want us to have. I think this is why ministers, uh, many ministers, especially love funerals. They're not happy that somebody's died, but there's a special sense at a funeral, especially the funeral of a saint, um, where the veil between heaven and earth is very thin. And um, you just have this sense that you're sort of in this in-between zone where you can connect heaven and earth and people really see eternity. And it's a beautiful time. I want to read one passage. We're nearing the end. But I want to read uh, 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I remember Joanne Farah as she was close to death. Uh, Chuck telling how one time she, she kind of woke up and said that she'd been to a beautiful country. She'd been to a beautiful country. I also remember a time where Laura, my Laura, was thrown from one of our horses and she came down on her, I can't remember if it was her front or her back, but at any rate, she was on her back having a seizure uh, from the fall. And I ran up, of course, panic-stricken, and I knelt down over her and I looked at her face and I said, Laura. Laura, because the lights were on, but she wasn't there. And later, she told me that that's because she was with the Lord. And they had a conversation. And um, she, he was saying, you need to go back. And she was saying, I don't want to go back. And uh, she, he, she, uh, the Lord said, Jim needs you. And, 
And I think at that point, honey, maybe you heard my voice. But anyway, she, she came back. And um, let me ask you, why would um, a young mother with four kids and an adoring husband be willing to go that fast? I don't want to go back. I think it's because one moment in eternity trumps all that we have here. Just one taste, just one moment, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, what God has prepared for those who love him. Hallelujah. We need to have more of that eternity, more of that eternity mindset. Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. To a land on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. I'll fly away, O glory, I'll fly away. Hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. And so we win either way, don't we? Facing adversity in this life with joy, or going home to be with the Lord. I want to be ready. I want to end with an interesting quote from Oswald Chambers that kind of takes us full cycle. He, he mentions, of course, he notes, of course, that eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ, but then he goes on to say these interesting words. The real meaning of eternal life is a life that can face anything it has to face without wavering. If we take this view, life becomes one great romance, a glorious opportunity for seeing marvelous things all the time. God is disciplining, disciplining us to get into this central place of power. Isn't that an interesting quote? The real meaning of eternal life is a life that can face anything it has to face without wavering. I want to pray for any of you who are really, really experiencing adversity these days. I want the body to minister to the body. So um, just kind of ask yourself right now, am I to be prayed for? And if you are, it doesn't matter that your adversity is a five or an eight or a 10 or a two. If you're to be prayed for, we want to pray for you. Others, I want to ask you to pray. So if you need prayer to face these adversities with courage and with joy, I want you to stand. Um, we're not going to belabor it long, but please, please stand up, and we want to pray for you. So those of you who know you're to pray rather than to be prayed for, would you gather around these? Let's, let's minister to one another as we pray. Let's make sure everybody has somebody laying some hands on them. Thank you, Lord. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Father, we pray for these who are standing. We pray, Father, for courage, that encouragement that they need by the Spirit of God. Lord, we pray for a new sense of faith and vitality and strength to rise in their hearts, O Lord. We pray that as they face these adversities, Lord, and struggle to find joy, that there would be the ability to endure. Just like Jamal in that Iraqi prison, O God, we pray that we would be faithful, that we would pass the test, that we would be undaunted, that we would not waver, But, Father, we would boldly and courageously embrace that adversity that we're facing. We pray that as others watch, Lord, these who are under a testing, Lord, that they would glorify God because they see our brother and our sister standing strong, bringing glory to God through their attitude and their words In Jesus' name, we pray for that supernatural joy, Lord, to flood and to to bring peace and an ability to smile even amidst the storm. We thank you, Father. And then we pray, Lord, for that mindset of eternity, that this is not our home and that we have a future and a hope a heavenly home which no eye has seen nor ear heard, that like Paul, staying in the flesh means fruitful labor for us, but going home to be with you is far, far to be wanted. We bless you, Lord. We glorify you. We thank you for the strengthening that you're imparting right now to these who are standing. We remember the words of Jesus in closing, In this world you have tribulation, but take courage. Take courage. I have overcome the world. So now, Father, we just entrust these beautiful people, these beautiful saints, into your loving hands in a new way. Help them to continually strengthen themselves in the Lord and find encouragement in your word and in the body of Christ. We love you, Lord. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.